Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. This is Sam here this week with Webb. Andy continues to be out on paternity leave. He is still continuing his efforts to be a responsible husband and father. Again, we're on week two of that. We'll see how long that lasts. On week two of, of Webb joining in for us, and we're also on week two of more Ezra Miller sightings. I saw that. <laughs> he, he, continue, he continues to just be Dennis the Menace. So now he's taken, he's gone global. He's Mr. Worldwide. It's like a... It's like Fast and the Furious 3. You know, he he did his stuff in the US and now he's on to Japan. He's doing his Tokyo Drift. He's uh he's he's had a I guess he got thrown out of a bar Apparently in Tokyo. He got the pu- punched by Austin is it Austin Butler, the guy who's about to play Elvis in that movie. There's there's reports oh, yeah. that they got into a scuffle <laughs> yeah. in a bar in Tokyo. I just find this fascinating. Ezra Miller has gone from just running amok in Hawaii to may- maybe kidnapping like a family and taking them to New Jersey, apparently. And now he's now he's on like three different <laughs> Vermont, which is yeah, even he's worse. On like three different continents. <laughs> There's even reports that he's been sighted in Iceland and in yeah. Germany. He's becoming like the Yeti. Like you just don't know exactly. Like there's just rumors swirling about where he is. He's like, turning into a super villain. He really is, man. I saw on Twitter somebody said that he accounts for 95% of all non-binary crimes. And I'm like, it's probably pretty true. Yeah. I love those memes that are talking about like him and DeBebe at the same time. You're like, man, DeBebe's been real quiet lately. Or like DeBebe yeah. crawled so that Ezra Miller could run. He's got to step up his game. He's 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 fallen behind on the on the points race right now. The season long race, bro. If those two ever team up, we are done. Oh my god! Like if if they become like the Batman and Robin of petty crime, Ezra Miller and Debebe together, that would be unstoppable. They need to form some sort of Sinister Six or whatever. You know, some of those one of those uh, Marvel or DC uh, supervillain groups. Right. Like, <laughs> and uh, it's going to be like them two and Amber Heard and <laughs> their uh, syndicate, uh, Jesse Jesse Smollett. I don't even know like who, who oh, I don't even know who would be on the power ranking of just like insane celebrities. But yeah, throw them all in the same pot and just like let them go. Right now, them. it's safe to say that Ezra Miller is just running circles around everyone. He is. He's definitely the Joker of the group. It's it's he's. Yeah, he is extending his lead against a baby. So, um, dude, speaking of crazy, today we're going over a movie called Crazy Stupid Love. This is one of the more random films that I I feel we have selected on this podcast so far. This movie kind of flew under the radar when it came out. It kind of continues to fly under the radar, I feel like. Despite the fact that it had a $50 million budget and grossed $145 million, so it's technically did really well, um, has a bunch of good actors, and it's a solid film. Written by Dan Fogelman, who wrote a, a handful of, of films you'd recognize, including like all the Cars movies, The Guilt Trip, Las Vegas. Like, so a bunch of, I would say, like he's, he's definitely got a feel for these comedy-type type movies. Yeah, once I read his, like, work i was like oh this all this all makes sense cars is kind of an outlier but all this uh like he wrote this is us that makes what else he wrote but it it all just seemed like this movie uh crazy stupid love is obviously very very character driven and i think that is kind of a reoccurring theme if you look at his uh filmography the different screenplays he's written we have steve carell as kind of our main character cal weaver got ryan gosling as jacob palmer and these are really by far the the main two characters and they play so well off each other i was I, I watched this movie with my wife and there are different actors that 
do reoccurring roles with one another that have really good on-screen chemistry. I think of like Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci or Al Pacino. And then you have, from a comedy perspective, you have John C. Riley and Will Ferrell. You have The Rock and Kevin Hart. But this is a pairing. I don't really recall them being in any other films together, but they work so well off each other and as individuals in the role that they've been casted. There's only a handful of actors in Hollywood that I think could have pulled off this kind of, you have... Steve Carell playing this, as he calls it, he's been cuckolded husband who is his wife has left him and he's just kind of pathetic loser. And then Ryan Gosling is just playing what I think a lot of women in the in the early teens thought of as Ryan Gosling, just like the the definition of a suave right. put together. He's like gentleman. a trust fund um, baby who spends every night at the same bar, which I didn't really realize the first time I watched this. You're just like, man, this guy's really cool. And the second time I started it, the movie obviously addresses this later on with his character arc, but uh, it's obvious, like, when you rewatch it the first time, you're like, wait a second, this guy, like, is at the same bar every night. Like, maybe he's actually kind of a loser. But, uh, no, he is, yeah, he is super yeah. cool. Uh, I want to piggyback off something you said about the chemistry for, you know, Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling being a great duo. I was watching this movie recently, and the person I was watching it with, I turned to them you know, Gosling's love interest in this movie is Emma Stone, and they really are a recurring duo. Uh, you want to talk about chemistry? Yeah. Like, those two kind of have this Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks thing going on where they've been in like three different movies together La La Land, uh, this movie. I'd have to look up, you know, what else. I just feel like I've seen Emma Stone opposite Ryan Gosling in a couple different roles, and they have a really, really uh, strong chemistry. Um, yeah, La La Land is interesting because it got so it got so big and so lauded that it almost became in vogue to shit on it and be like, well, it's not that good, but it is pretty good. And this movie kind of has the opposite problem where it didn't get lauded enough and nobody ever really picked up on it. Would you say that La La Land insists upon itself? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think you could make the argument that it is, insists upon itself, not as much as like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, like an objectively bad oh, film and screenplay and book, and and then just like everybody's like, oh yeah, it's got this great deep oh, meaning, dude. and it's like no, it Hunter doesn't. S. Thompson you don't have stands to impress are about people. to come you after not, you. You don't have to impress people at your cocktail bar. Like it's not that good. You ha- and and let's be honest, you haven't read it. Yeah. Okay. If you if you, I got fifty pages. Of it. <laughs> that's as far as I could get. Um. I will say that, you know, Steve Carell, as far as him just crushing this role, I had read where the, what was the writer's name? Dan? Dan Fogelman. Yeah, Dan Fogelman wrote this script with Carell in mind to play that role. Um, And after he turned the screenplay over to his management, Carell had signed on like within a week, which pretty much greenlit the the project yeah and you could see why reading the reviews for this thing it's kind of interesting man they're they're a little bit mixed it seems to hover around a seven out of ten like a four out of five stars or like a i think rotten tomatoes had the approval rating at around like 79 percent, which i think is fair one of the reviews that i kind of think hit the nail on the head for this movie was from entertainment weekly and uh they had written that nothing more or less than this movie is nothing more or less than an enchantingly light comedy of romantic confusion. And this is what kind of hits home. They say it's a movie that understands love because it understands pain. And I think that sums it up pretty well. And romantic confusion is the other line that I, that I drew out of that. Um, I think that's extremely apt. I think this movie is interesting because it's listed as a romantic comedy, but if you go into it thinking it's going to be, 
a typical romantic comedy where you've got boy meets girl, they butt heads and they and they eventually end up together. This is kind of the opposite. You in you start our main love story, if you will. Actually, there's really two main love stories, and both uh, you know you've got Steve Carell and his wife, and they start together, and then they grow apart, and they never really get back together. And it kind of it, it alludes to, like you said, the pain. And then you've got Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, who have more of the true romantic comedy setup, where like they meet each other, that there's not that chemistry, and then they get together. But there's other there's other love stories that are even more complicated that have different dynamics. So this is one of the things I really like about this movie. There's there's such a good trying there, there's such a good character web of people coming from different backgrounds different personalities that cross with one another and it creates for some really fun dynamics another review that i think sums this up pretty well betsy sharkey from the la times she gives it four out of five stars and says that quote it conjures up the bittersweet magic of first loves lasting loves lost loves and all the loves in between which I've, yeah. i heard a couple people kind of note on this obviously uh divorce is a big part of this story so you've got lost loves you've got like you know the type of love that you'll have in marriage like everlasting loves till death do us part love you've got like one night stands you've got boyhood crushes it's like every single element this seems very meta but i've heard that you know in japanese culture they've got like 100 200 different words that could mean love where i think uh you know love is often thrown around really loosely over here yeah and is kind of an umbrella term and this movie almost like has a little bit for a little bit of something for everything that would fit under that umbrella if that makes sense yeah we've pointed to a lot of movies in this pod where we've said man you can really gleam something different every time you watch this movie you know five to ten years apart depending on what stage of life you're at and i think that's totally true and i when this movie first came out in 2011 i probably watched it and thought of myself as the ryan gosling character just because it's like single like in college not necessarily because i thought i was as cool as ryan gosling but just because that sort of that was my life stage single young male whereas now i again i'm happily married but i watch what somebody like steve carell and julianne moore are going through and i'm like oh that's not necessarily as relatable but life stage wise it's a little bit more relatable and then uh i imagine if you watched this movie when you were a bit younger you would you would look at what the son robbie is going through with the teenage love and and that might make more sense to you so uh yeah, it's got something for everybody. Let's get into it. So, as we said, Cal Weaver, played by Steve Carell, uh, starts off with him at dinner with his wife, Emily, played by Julianne Moore. And this is one of the... I'm try, I always try not to use hyperboles. I always feel like I say, this is the best opening, or this is one of the best openings. But, man, I, I gotta say, from a, from a writing perspective, this is such a great cold opener, because... You have Cal on one side of the table. You have Emily on another side of the table. They're at dinner. They're both looking at the menu. Cal is like, man, what do you want? I don't know what I want. Emily is kind of looks very distraught, perplexed as she's looking at the menu. She's like, I'm not sure. And Cal is thinking like, what do you think about the calamari? What do you think about this? And he's like off on his own world. He's not reading that Emily is clearly something is on her mind. And, and then he says, okay, we'll say it in three. One, two, three. And then he's saying in dish and she's just like, I want a divorce. Yeah, the whole restaurant looks at them, <laughs> and that is, and this all happens in the first ten seconds of the movie. It's such a great opener. Um, it just immediately sets you off on this couple. They're clearly have been married for a long time, or at least they're they're a little bit older. Um, they're at this fancy restaurant. Maybe they're celebrating something. It's a good hook, and she clearly just drop it. She drops the bombshell on him, and his face, and her face. You can just tell it was it came out of nowhere, right? 
you know, you always hear about, um, especially if you're you're listening to this and you're a writer and you're trying to sell something, how important it is to, you know, have a strong opener or especially to just kind of like hit those story beats uh, if you're doing a 120-page screenplay. And I have to imagine that whoever was reading this, whether it was Steve Carell or uh, the management team out there in L.A., like first page, when you get to that kind of opening line, it, it was a good hook right off the jump. Absolutely. Um, there's kind of a fun next five minutes of that whole night unraveling um, as the credits, the opening credits are playing. Julianne Moore wants to talk about their problems and Steve Carell just totally checks out, which is, again, as you said, this is a very heavy character. It's a very character-driven piece. And as you learn more about Steve Carell's character, he is not a fighter. He is just somebody that's going to withdraw from those kind of situations. And he just like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it to the point where he, he does something that I've always thought about doing, but I will probably never do, which is (laughs) if you've just totally had it with an argument, he just opens the car door and just rolls out the car (laughs) while it's going like 30 miles an hour. Uh, which again, God, just that's, that's so great. So they get to the house. They have the, the babysitter there who, is play. I mean, I don't recognize Jessica Riley. Um, Jessica Riley um, is the babysitter, and she is uh, watching over uh, their kids, but mainly the uh, son Robbie, who is one of the main characters, obviously as well. And she catches Robbie, you know, uh, jacking off. Basically, I was trying to think of a better way, to <laughs> but there's not really a good right. way to put that. The um, actress name is Leo. I think if this is right, L I O Leo Tipton. It's Jessica Riley. Yeah, I've not seen her in anything else. But uh, anyways, so Awkward. catches Robbie with his hand down his pants, and uh, and then he is Robbie is super weird about it. He says like, "By the way, I was thinking about you when I do it." <laughs> like, and he says weird stuff like that the entire movie. Yeah. He just does not know how to talk to girls. And Jessica is four years older than him, super freaked out. And that that becomes one of I think about four of our more our, our love stories to get more screen time. So kind of important to point out that dynamic. I love that he's supposed to be like thirteen, um, and she's you know like seventeen, about to go off to college. In the height difference, you know, she towers over yeah. him. And uh, I, I've heard middle school teachers yeah, talk about this, or like, man, it's so funny to watch these kids go down the hall because girls typically develop faster, and so. These guys, you know, will be dating girls in like seventh, eighth, ninth grade that are just much taller than them. Yeah, and I don't know. It feels feels kind of accurate. So the parents get home. Steve Carell takes Jessica home to her parents, and she is trying to confess her love for Steve Carell. So they've kind of got a love triangle going. And Steve Carell is so oblivious and so in his feelings, he doesn't even notice it. He drops off Jessica. You learn throughout this entire evening that the wife Emily had cheated on. Cal with her coworker David Linhagen. David Linhagen. Who you later find out is played by Kevin Bacon. But I love, I love the name David Linhagen. It just is so apt of like the guy. It kind of reminds me of on on Fairly God Parents when we're always like Dinkelberg. Yeah, like the enemy. It just they gave him such a ridiculous name. Like what's the what's the <laughs> the guy's name on uh, Office Space? The boss. Oh, um, oh God, I totally forget. <laughs> You slept with uh, what's his name? Pull it up. Yeah, let me let me check this out. One second. Yeah, Bill Lumberg. 
You slept with Lumber? Bill Lumber, yes. yes. Yeah. Oh my god, you slept with Lumber. It's a great name, David Lindhagen, and they, there's a ton of buildup where they mention this guy like 150 times before you actually meet him, and then when you find out that, it, that, that David Lindhagen is Kevin Bacon, it's a great treat. It's like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. By the time, you're so ready to see this guy by the time he comes on screen. Yeah, and obviously what he did, like sleeping with a married woman is, is scummy, but... I love how the the nuance that Kevin Bacon brings to the role of David Linhagen because he actually is like obviously that aside he is actually a really nice guy. He tries to be nice to everybody that he encounters throughout the film. He tries to like talk to Robbie about his interests and stuff and he it just it's it again it create it, it adds to the complex dynamic of every time you see David Linhagen he's not doing anything wrong other than what he did off screen. So, I thought that was a a, a nice touch. So anyways, Cal moves out of the house. There's some great dialogue of him that happening. He moves into his own apartment, this crappy, you know, one-bedroom apartment, gets his own furniture. He starts going to a bar, the same bar every night, and he's sitting at the bar drinking, you know, as they say, watered-down cranberry vodkas, and he's just talking about how David Lindhagen cucked yeah. him. He's like, I'm a cuckold. <laughs> I'm a cuckold. Like, you know, kind of just like yelling the Steve Carell, like the monotone, flat voice, ah, ah, like like you would do in the office or something. So it's it's so good. Uh, you can see night after night. You have Jacob Palmer played by Ryan Gosling is also going in there, and you you see him having successful conversations with other women. You see him talking at one point to Emma Stone, and her role is is titled Hannah. You see Hannah and Jacob have this quick interaction, and you know that it's they're going to circle back around to that just because Emma Stone is playing her. The dialogue's really good on that. Like, when they introduce Ryan Gosling, because you see this guy, he comes to the bar every night wearing, like, a three-piece suit. He eats dinner at this bar. It seems like a very posh kind of spot in L.A. Uh, And come to find out, like, he doesn't work. He's inherited a lot of family money. And this is, like, his shtick. When they introduce Emma Stone's character, she's having drinks with a friend. Ryan Gosling is just staring them down from across the bar. He approaches them, and I forget what he says, and she's really, like— hey is that like your pickup line and he's, he's like no he's like what are you a lawyer and she's like is that your pickup line do you think that'll actually work and he's like objection leading the witness and it's so good a per- a permission to approach the bench and the friends just like eating it up and he's like that's not a line but yeah. me you know sitting over here staring at you for the last two hours can't take my eyes off you that's a fact um he's very smooth about it yeah. but they also he falls a little bit flat in the dialogue it, it, can... it helps that he's ryan Gosling. oh yeah absolutely um she is obviously in law school and is very smart, maybe even a little too smart for him. Near the end of their conversation, his lines start to fall a little bit on their face. She says something to the effect of, like, that's a double negative. And he kind of thinks, he's like, you're a double negative. And it just, he can't, he doesn't pull it off. Um, and she's yeah. she's dating someone at the time, uh, one of her fellow law school students, who's played by Josh Groban. That character's great. Which we have to talk about that yeah. when we get to when we get to that scene. I yeah. love that. I've never seen Josh Groban in anything else. I don't know if he was just dipping his toes in the acting water, but he plays that his role so well. He's so funny. Yeah, he does. But yeah, he swinging so a miss got, for Gosling with Emma Stone. So you see the moment where Cal meets Jacob, and Cal is at the bar, as we said talking about how much David Linhagen cuckolded him. And Jacob calls him over, tells him that he's being pathetic. And J- Cal's like, I don't want to hear this. And he's like, no, like, it's it's tough, but you need to hear this. And he offers his help. He says, dude, I'm going to get you back on your feet. I- I'm going to get you back to being the man that your wife fell in love with and not some guy that, you know, she cuckolded for David Linhagen. So he's like, where do, you, where do you think you lost your manhood? Strong case could be made for 1984. That scene is so funny. He's like, 
David Lindhagen. He's like, yeah, I, Ryan Gosling's been listening to it the whole time. He's like, why would I know something so personal about you? He's like, everyone here knows. You've been coming in here every night talking about how you've been cuckolded by David Lindhagen. And so Gosling makes the proposition to help him. Steve Carell wants to know, like, why are you doing this? And I, again, like talking about strong character art, not showing all your cards really early. There's just the smallest implication from Ryan Gosling. He's like, you remind me of someone that I used to know. And that kind of sets up, like, you don't need to tell everything about this character all at once. And that's something this movie does really well, is they drop you in the middle of the opening scene at dinner. And, you know, they take the full and a half, the full two hours of the film to develop all the characters. And and you slowly start to understand what motivates Jacob Palmer and and all these characters really well. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jacob takes cow shopping. There's some great moments in that of, of obviously there's the memeable moment where Steve Carell, Cal takes out his wallet and <laughs> it's got, it's a Velcro wallet and, and Cal or Jacob just looks so offended. He, does, he like stands yeah, back. He does, and that like, scene oh is God. so funny. He kind of just stands back and looks down. Um, and I do got to say that one thing I love about that scene is I feel like there's a ton of rom-coms, uh, which are typically marketed to women, where you have the, the the makeover montage where like it's like two women go out and one's showing another girl how beautiful she can be and how can she can redo her hair and buy the right clothes and apply the right makeup. Yeah. But you never get that with like two guys, you know? And you've got Ryan Gosling, yeah. like super metro, knows how to dress and just takes Steve Carell on this shopping spree to make him like Rico Suave. Uh, really, really funny montage. Yeah, usually it's done to the sound of that song that's like, you want it? <laughs> you got it, baby. You want it, and and they keep leaving the dressing room with like a different outfit, and it's always a completely different style. Right. And they like do a pose, and then the friend will like shake their head, and then finally the music will like stop, and it'll play something a lot more elegant. When they walk out with the right dress, and then it slowly pans up, and they're like kind of meekly standing there. What do you think? And then that's the one that they're obviously going to choose. Yep. It's it, that's been done like a hundred times, but anyway, so we get a little bit of that. Um, so uh. We see Cal and Jacob start hitting up the same bar together, which, as you pointed out before, it's very obviously the same chic bar. But again, as a younger person, I just thought it was a cool spot as it was what their decision to keep going there. But then as you watch it as an adult, I would include Jacob in the fact that it's kind of pathetic that they keep going to the same bar. It's Jacob's Um, deal. And he's miyagi In his own words, he's pulling a Mr. Miyagi on Steve Carell, basically teaching him how to wax on, wax off, how to pick up chicks with a couple essential rules that he's i guess formulated on his own his little strategy uh, as a pickup artist but he's doing it in in kind of a roundabout way where steve carell's just watching him flourish and do his thing and therein kind of learning the game yeah learn learning by seeing it firsthand so he they, they go to the bar one night and they meet a teacher named kate played by marissa tomei who if you don't know who that is just think of uh aunt may in the latest spider-man films and their dynamic is great so cal goes and talks to kate and he keeps falling flat on his face while he clearly looks better he's still the same cal and he's obviously brand new to like going up to a woman at a bar and talking to them so he's like she's like what do you do and he's like what do you do and she kind of giggles and is like i asked you first he's like i asked you second (laughs) and it's like so weird she's like you're really not going to tell me what you do and you're like okay well that's i'm gonna get you a drink basically just like yeah she's like no he's like no no no. i'm gonna get you a gray goose she's like no five years sober 
He's trying to follow Ryan Gosling's rules are basically he always gets these women to talk about them, never about him. He knows he's very self-aware, knows he's kind of mysterious and plays Which off is that. a good rule. And that's a good rule for any any socialization, sure. that you should let people talk about themselves. But yeah, to the point where she, she's like, well, I'm a teacher. He's like, boring, <laughs> you're boring me. <laughs> at first, when they get to the bar and, you know, Gosling is talking to all these different girls. And at one point, he has Steve Carell, you know, he like leaves him alone with this younger girl. And he's like, Cal Weaver. No relation to Dennis Weaver. And, and she's like, what? And Gosling comes back over and goes, you're not talking about McLeod again, are you? <laughs> it's like some show from the 70s. <laughs> he's like, right yeah. as he's telling, he's like, yeah, it's from this old show called McLeod. Gosling comes over, he's like, you're not talking about McLeod again, are you? <laughs> it's so good. So obviously he goes home with Marissa Tomei. Around this time, Cal's kids are coming over and there's signs that women have been there and stuff. So... Robbie picks up on this and he has a moment at school where he acts out um, because they're reading the Scarlet Letter and that whole situation of like adultery and like what his parents are going through and stuff really just kind of irks him. So he acts out. His mom has to come pick him up from school and take take him to work. And that's where they have this really interesting conversation of um, where Emily asks Robbie, her son, how Cal is doing and Cal's like, oh, he's, he's doing good. Like, he's going out a lot. And he, she's like, really? Yeah. Like, a lot, a lot? Or, yeah, like, a lot. Like, you know, with these women and stuff. And then she's, you can tell that she's trying to not let it. Starts, like, banging her. on the keyboard. Then, yeah. Robbie's like, he's not happy. Like, you can tell he's not happy about it. You know, like, he's not crying or anything. He just doesn't seem happy, um, which I think is, is, is an interesting insight into, you know, what, what a child might see. And then uh, then we have our introduction of Kevin Bacon, David, David Lindhagen, which, as I said earlier, David Lindhagen comes in and is, could not be more cordial, like tries to meet Robbie and stuff. And he's like, so I hear you're into baseball. And then Robbie moves the chair up so that he's, he's sitting over David Lindhagen. He's like, let me tell you something, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My parents are going to get back together. It's like, and, you know, just like this. He like puts the, the photo of cal and emily on the desk facing him and then my dad's gonna win her back because my dad is better than you in every way yeah um yeah great great scene and he and robbie's just staring daggers through this guy how any kid would feel in Uh, that situation um but yeah on that same plot line you've got uh a parent teacher conference because because robbie got in trouble cal and emily have to go meet robbie's teacher and when the parent teacher conference starts the door opens and who is there who is Robbie's teacher then? Marissa Tomei, Kate, the the woman that Steve Carell hooked up with a few scenes ago. And obviously that comes out during their meeting. Kate gets on to him for, you know, giving him a great night but not calling back that whole thing. And um, A-hole is in a, a guy who lets a woman go down on her for 45 minutes because he's nervous. And it, it becomes apparent to Julian. My one of my favorite lines in the movie is like Marissa Tomei just can't hold it in, and she starts reaming Steve Carell in front of his ex wife. And the and Julianne Moore's slowly starting to connect the dots. And and at first, Steve Carell plays it off as like, "Do we know each other? Yeah, like I guess I met you last year at the teacher conference." And when his cover's finally blown, and Julianne Moore realizes that like, okay, my husband has slept with with Robbie's teacher, and and Robbie's teacher is like staring down Steve Carell. He just kind of goes. She's an alcoholic. <laughs> that line's so funny because yeah. she's like five years sober, and that just sends her into an absolute like frenzy. He's like, "Don't listen to her. Like yeah. she's an alcoholic." 
Yeah. In front of all the other parents, they storm out of the school and they have a fight. And Emily basically is like, you slept with how many women? Blah, blah, blah. Cal owns up and is like, yeah, I probably slept with, I forget the number. Nine. I think he says like 13. No, it's nine. Which nine. he lets that slip on his own kind of inadvertently. And what an idiot. Yeah. And she's just totally dumbfounded and he kind of is like hey i didn't ask for this you know i did not ask for this i still love you she's like you You showed me dude good job yeah which makes him feel you know about two inches tall so we go back to hannah who again is played by emma stone is out with her friends she's just taking the bar they're out celebrating that and they're at this nice restaurant and she is bouncing ideas off of her best friend liz who we've met in earlier scenes about she's expecting that her boyfriend, Richard, again, played by Josh Groban, is going to propose. And you can tell that Liz is supposed to be a little bit of author speak of like, you're not really happy with this guy. Like, I think you should have hooked up with this Cal guy, even though you're in a committed relationship with Richard. Liz is bad news bears, but she sees that ultimately this isn't what Hannah right. wants. She's and, kind of the devil on the um, shoulder. There's, I do love how all the law school guys yeah, she, look so, like, they all look like Tucker Carlson. It's the same the yeah. same group, you know, they all have the comb over. Like Richard's a sweet guy, but he's a little bit aloof, obviously. Josh Groban, he plays such a good role of this young yuppie out of law school lawyer who is very suave and confident, but also is kind of boring. Like his charisma does not translate to being charismatic. He kind of reminds me of some of the characters on American Psycho, where you're like, You're not you're not fooling anybody. You're kind of a weird dude. Right. So it's a great nuance that he brings to the role. There's a moment where Richard stands up and is like, hey, I've got, a, you know, something, I've got an announcement. You know, Hannah, I'm so proud of you. You mean this much to me. And you kind of think he might propose, but he ends up just offering her a job at the law firm. And Hannah, you know, downs her drink, storms out. and She downs his buddy's um, drink. It's like gin. She's like, I hate gin. And she just pounds it. And is doing like that crazy laugh yeah. where you're clearly upset, but she's just so you know, be fumbled uh, because her expectations of, you know, Richard proposing to her were obviously way off. He's, his head's not even there. Yeah. He tells her, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I need way more time to decide if that's the direction I want to I'm moving. And she's like, oh, really? Like, you need more time? I'm a great catch. Uh, so then she yeah. storms out into the rain and goes back to the, the posh, chic L.A. bar to find hot guy from the bar, as Liz calls him. Which, again, as I, as I said earlier, their love story, if you want to call it that, between Emma and Jacob is the closest thing we have in this story to a true romantic comedy because they meet, they don't initially hit it off, she's with somebody else, and then she realizes that that's not true love, and she storms out in the rain, walks in soaking wet, and then immediately goes in for the kiss. That could be the that could be one of the closing scenes of a typical romantic comedy, but as, again, as I said, this isn't very typical, so... They go back to their house, and again, this is something that might happen off-screen with some romantic comedies, but they're there to hook up, and there's this great back-and-forth where Emma Stone's character is clearly super nervous. Jacob is over there making two old fashions, and he brings them out, and he puts on the music and stuff, and there's some great dialogue in this It's a great Uh, scene, dude. First of all, she makes him take his shirt off, and Ryan Gosling is obviously looks like an Abercrombie Fitch model. She's like, Shit, you know, dude. just in total disbelief. She's like, that's not fair. Can yeah. I put my shirt and back on? He's like, on? well, now you have to take your shirt off. Yeah, she's yeah. like, no, I'm not taking mine off with all, not with all that going on. Uh, I do got to yeah. say, right before that, I love her lines because her character. It's funny, like Robbie, their son, um, Steve Carell's son in this movie, is like the valedictorian of his class. He's clearly smart. Hannah is obviously in law school. 
but she it's a very well-developed character she's analyzing everything once they're at ryan gosling's place like how how is this supposed to go down and she's kind of asking him that very she's being very forward about it she's like i know what happens in the pg-13 version of this night like i fall asleep on the couch you lay a blanket over me but i'm here for the r-rated version like let's get it on but also i'm very nervous like how do we do this what are we supposed to do next and it's really cute and it kind of disarms jacob yeah Yeah, disarms jacob because i think he's used to the girl acting like she wants the pg-13 turning it into the r but i think her being up front and clearly being nervous kind of like makes him want to put his drink down and be like well what do you mean and then she asks him like what's your move like what do you mean what's my move you've got a move i know what your move is and he finally is just like well yeah so what i do is i put on dirty dancing <laughs> i puts, work dirty dancing into the conversation yeah he works dirty dancing into the conversation uh and, and he sh- he shows her he, he turns on the time uh, of your life time of your life everybody knows that song I have time of my life yeah. and, and turns on that record and has her run across the room. He's like, I can do that. I can do that. I can do, the I can move. do this Patrick. Sure Swayze. Yeah. Do the Patrick. Swayze. She runs into his arms. He holds her up in the air, which I, I turned to my wife and was like, I was like, I can do that. And then I watched them do it. And I was like, I don't think I can do that anymore <laughs> after all I'm watching that. Like that, that takes so much strength in like your, your triceps and your core and your back and stuff. It's pretty tough. And, uh, the other thing I, I said in that moment is I could totally see how that would work in real life. There's like the physical contact, like showing your strength and obviously like the romantic nature of that. Like I could absolutely see how like when you've both been drinking, how that move would 100% work, right. you know, 90% of the time. So the night kind of evolves and they're, um, they start to kiss. They're, they're kind of like getting in the uh, mood to have sex, but then in, they end up just like talking. She ends up just, ro- I think, roasting him about like how expensive his sheets are. You know, you're talking about other things that he's bought. All of his material stuff. Yeah, he's like, I've got this massage chair that I've only used twice. Cut to, like, they're in the garage all of a sudden. She's got a blanket over her. She's like, I don't like this. It doesn't feel good. He's like, yeah, I know. And it's a really endearing scene because obviously they're setting you up for, like, these two people are young and they're definitely going to have sex. That's what, you know, that's just Jacob's thing. He's pulled off the big move. But it totally spirals into just, like, a real explosive chemistry and a real um you know they just like hit it off on a personal level and they and they spend all night talking and that's yeah. when we get a little bit more insight into jacob's character he reveals that like hey basically i've got all this nice stuff because my dad left me a lot of money um and he tells her you know you you realize why he's been helping steve carell out it was actually his dad that had been through a similar situation as far as like his mom was really yeah. cold was not was not good to him and his dad was, in his words, like way too sweet of a guy. And so yeah. you get some more character development in that scene. That scene puts you on your heels a little bit because, you, as you said, you know who Jacob is. You, you've seen this movie before, and they just they, they flip that expectation. They subvert that expectation really nicely. Um, in the dialogue, they spend probably five minutes of Emma just showing different scenes of different conversations. It, it, will, it will show like... 20 30 seconds of a conversation then it will blend into another conversation that's clearly happening hours later and every conversation just has so much like humor to it and like they play so well off each other and then like the next conversation will be a little bit more sober of like them admitting something to each other and it's just everybody's been there it's like that night of conversation you have that just kind of like one one conversation rolls into another and it ends up being like both fun and like op- you open up to somebody like that and that's a rare thing and 
it's it's a great example of showing and not telling yep. two people falling in love. I feel like a lot of rom-coms would have them just like have the one night stand and then the next 30 minutes would be like, that was awkward and they maybe they don't even like each other, but then they get back together and they fall in love. And this is so much of a better, it's, it's one of the best parts of the story. And it's apparent that it is that Jacob's that Ryan Gosling's character, Jacob has not had a night like this in a really long time, maybe ever. Like his whole thing is closing the deal. He does the big move. He sleeps with countless women, uh, true city boy. And for the first time, you know, he, yeah. he finds himself really enjoying a conversation with a girl and starting to fall in love with her. So at this point of the story, we've got a few different wants and needs starting to evolve and, and adapt before our eyes. We've obviously have Cal who he wants to get back with his wife, but he probably needs to move on. He doesn't know how to do that. So he starts to fall into a depressive state, especially because Jacob is not answering his calls anymore primarily because jacob has thought that his his want this whole time is to meet women but he finally finds his need of 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 falling for hannah and uh then we go to our i guess our our third or fourth love story that we we've been covering so robbie and jessica so robbie starts making some more grand gestures at school to get jessica's love he has this moment where he stands up in front of the entire school at lunch and professes his love to Jessica and all this stuff. Um, Jessica obviously is not about that. So Robbie tells Cal that he thinks that, you know, Jessica's a soulmate. He also thinks that Emily is Cal's soulmate. And they kind of have this like father son moment as, as they're playing catch or just like, you know, we shouldn't give up on these, these girls. Robbie is, Robbie very much represents the, hopeless romantic of the story right and jessica's still not about it because she likes cal as we went over in in one of our first scenes of the film i like how she has one girl at school who like is known to get with older men that she talks to and she's trying to get advice from her and she's like how do you get older men to pay attention to you and this chick's just like well first of all i have a huge rack (laughs) (laughs) yeah The, the other part of that scene that i like is uh jessica says Hey, by the way, don't tell anybody about that. And she's like, my lips are, ar, 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 ar. She's like, what? My, my lips are seals. My lips are seals. Yeah, that, that's it's so, just so weird. Ar, ar, ar. Yeah. Um, so Jessica, on the advice of this, of this classmate, takes nudes and writes them in an envelope, you know, puts them in an envelope using some calligraphy, writes Cal on the front and then tucks it away. So pretty it's it's pretty good indication that we are ramping things up and that's going to come into play a little bit and like poor cal dude because it like that this girl is 17 if she texts him these pictures or something like his ass is going to jail (laughs) and he has no idea he has no idea that this baby has no idea on him you get this great scene where cal is uh basically stalking his wife he sees her through the window and stuff and he's just watching his family and all of a sudden emily calls his cell phone and she's asking how to relight the furnace. and But he can see through the window that she's not doing that. You can tell. So he knows that she, Emily just wants to hear his mm. voice. And so that's kind of the moment that Robbie talks to him. He didn't really believe Robbie. And now he sees that and he's like, all right, this is my, this is my need. I don't, ha- I don't need to be moving on. I need to go get my wife back. So finally, Jacob calls him back the next day. Jacob recalls him back and is like, hey, man, sorry I didn't return your calls. Oh, before that, um, I, I, I guess I did miss one thing. Um, something that I caught the second time I watched this film. So there's obviously the reveal that Marissa Tomei's character is the teacher, right? Teacher hooked up with Cal, and you're kind of like, whoa, I didn't realize that, that they, those two had a, had a second connection, right? There's another 
scene like that that happens where after Jessica takes her nudes, she goes downstairs and you realize that her family, her father is Cal's old friend from one of the first scenes where Cal meets his friend at the bar and talks about the divorce and his friend gives him cologne. Um, it is kind of a re- such small a reoccurring dude. character throughout the film. Is, and that's yeah, kind of, the, I guess dude. the theme is, you know, well, Cal's, they're, they're both live in the same neighborhood and Cal, in uh, Jacob's words, has lost sight of his manhood. And in the same way, like his buddy, their their friend couple, the, the, the husband is a total pushover. Like he has to tell him at the bar, like, yeah. hey, my wife said we have to either pick you or Emily. And obviously I picked you, but she said no. You're like, come on, dude. Are you really that lactose? He carries in a small bag from Macy's into the bar, and then he's like, oh, I have a Chardonnay. <laughs> and just like everything, every small thing about it is just like, this guy, it just immediately triggers you to like, this guy is kind of a pushover. But um, nothing wrong with Chardonnay. I love Chardonnay and Macy's. Shouts out Macy's. Um, but again, we're, we're cued to, this is the second connection that, that has been made. These characters we didn't know realize were connected. You've got, we've now realized that Jessica's father is Cal's friend. Um, I will say that you, then, they do show that pretty when he drops Jessica off that very first night, he walks in and they show that family like eating dinner and talking about it. So like, okay. you know, you know that their dynamic, at least Jessica's family before that, that scene. Uh, but it comes into play, obviously, when she puts these nude photos in an envelope because dad finds them. So the next day, Jacob finally returns Cal's calls. Hey, if, you know, sorry, I haven't been talking lately. Sorry, I fell off the radar, but... I uh, I need some advice because I think I'm falling for this girl, Hannah. And um, Jacob says, I'm going to go meet Hannah's family. And Cal's like, man, you're going to do good. Just be yourself. Uh, all that kind of stuff that you, you would say to anybody going to go meet parents for the first time. But Cal's got his own problems. So Cal has to go back and uh, win his wife back. So as, as Jacob is going to go win over Hannah's parents, Cal has got to go win back his wife. And he's doing that by making this um, mini golf course in his backyard as as kind of an ode to the first date that him and Emily had. And uh, they invite all their kids, and they've got their kid coming back. Um, what do they call her, Banana or Nana? They call her Nana. So Nana is their other child coming back home. So all the kids are going to be home. And the kids turn. They see someone walk in. They say, Nana's here. And who walks in but Emma Stone, with Ryan Gosling following her. And I think this movie does such a good job of setting up that twist right. that Hannah is Cal's kid. Um, as I said, the rule of three, there's there's two other kind of connect family connections you didn't realize throughout this film. They, they talk a little bit about Nana earlier, and then Hannah, they're kind of similar. Oh, it's right under your nose you could, the whole time. I, I could, they, t- they talk about it. It's right her. under your nose, yes. man. It, once, it's, it, dude, once they do the big reveal here, it makes total sense. And this is... I think maybe the most fun scene of the movie and it's definitely like the nucleus of the script when when all this unfolds um it all, it's one of those things that like once they pull the curtain up over your eyes it all makes sense and obviously Steve Carell is not happy about Ryan Gosling having spent you know the first hour and a half of this movie showing him how to pick up chicks at a bar and just take them home to have sex he is not happy that yeah. He's dating his oldest daughter. And, and just so you know, so yeah. this daughter, Hannah, Hannah Banana, Nana, Emma Stone, was like Cal and Emily's first kid that they had like right out of high school. They had they, they, they got pregnant out of wedlock, and that's why they got married right out of high school. Because they, they did tell you that they got married right out of high school. Um, and now it, it kind of makes sense as to as to why. And, and so the evening that was planned quickly devolves 
Cal probably pretty understandably, obviously, as you said, does not want Jacob to be around his daughter. Jacob is like, come on, dude, like we're friends. Like, you, you know, this is fine. Well, as that's happening, Robbie is like, Jessica, you know, his love. And then the reason that Jessica shows up is because Jessica's father has found the nudes under the bed with the, with, you know, Cal and the hearts around it. And the dad is like guns for Cal's head and just tries to, you know, and tries to choke him out. And yeah, he uh, thinks his friend is sleeping with his they, high school daughter. I mean, he was, yeah, he's right. ready to kill this guy. It, again, all these parties are totally in the right for the way that they're feeling sure. right now. And then out of nowhere, David Linhagen shows up. Yeah. I don't even want to call him the innocent party, but in this moment, he's the innocent party. He's just kind of like, <laughs> He oh, shows up invited, to return whatever, a like, sweater. That's what it is. He has like uh, yeah. uh, Emily's sweater, and he shows up all smiles, and it is just throwing kerosene on the fire when Kevin Bacon yeah. rolls up. Jacob is like, oh, you're David Linhagen, takes off his ring and punches him in the face. Because he said earlier, if I ever meet this guy, I'm going to deck him. It's great because you have all four of these men just like rolling around fighting. And then then the three women are just like standing back watching all of it, (laughs) shaking their heads like this is so stupid. Then it has the great scene afterwards where they've lined up all the men. They're just like sitting there bloodied and bruised. They're just like, well, what do you have to say for yourself type moment? They're talking to the cops, uh, right? (laughs) Yeah. That whole thing breaks down. Everybody has kind of fallen apart. Everybody leaves in frustration. Cal, most importantly, you know, he says that line about, you know, they tell him to go home like this isn't your home. And and he's like, well, you made real sure of that, didn't you, Emily? And uh, leaves. Cal goes back to his bar. He's moping. Um, Jacob shows up and he's like, I know that you probably don't want to hear this, but I'm in love with your daughter. And uh, Cal's like, I don't want to hear it, dude. Um, you'll never be good enough and, and I'm never going to give you my yeah. approval. Like I know too much. Yeah. So, but Jacob and, and Hannah have decided as they've said, as they said in the earlier scene, like we ultimately don't need your approval. We're both adults. Yeah. But Jacob does say something really, really good, uh, to Cal. Jacob kind of just lets it go without any hard feelings and expresses that he's got a lot of respect for Cal and praises him for being like a really good dad. And you can tell, like, one yeah. of the good things about Jacob's character arc is we're introduced to him. He's he's really endearing because he's super cool, can pick up any chick, kind of a Rico Suave type. But he it becomes apparent as he's fallen in love that, like, there's more to life than that. And he, he really would like to be more like Cal. Like, there's nothing wrong with rocking the 407s and being really into your yard work. And he want, he's ready to get domesticated. Yeah. As is Robbie. Robbie is 13. He's really ready to get domesticated. Right. Um, Robbie's eighth grade graduation. He's going on to middle school and or going on to high school. And uh, man, this scene is, I, I can't decide if I like this scene or not. Cause I think that what it brings out is necessary for the story, but it's kind of just like an underwritten scene. And I, and I just think it's kind of cringy. I just hate, I, I hate the trope of the event that brings our characters back together. And then one character stands up and is like, wait, I have something to say. Like, I just, that that's overdone in my opinion. Um, and it just, it, it, it comes off as very cringy. So Robbie has his eighth grade. He's the salutatorian uh, at his eighth grade graduation. He gives a speech. Speech is really weird. Robbie's just a really weird kid. He, is. he talks about love and how he doesn't, he doesn't believe in love anymore, which if I'm going to be critical, like he's seen some shit, but also I, it's weird that he was, the ultimate believer in love throughout the entire narrative. And at the very last second, he did. Well, that. it's like you said, he's, um, he's a hopeless, back he's a it. hopeless romantic and he is kind of an awkward kid. A lot of things he does are cringy. Like the whole scene where he, they're talking about the scarlet letter. The reason he gets in trouble is he goes on this rant where he says the word asshole, like 
eight times. I don't love that scene. I'm kind of like, man, if you were a kid and your parents are going through a divorce, like maybe show this kid like getting a fight in the lunchroom or something. Um, purely yeah. just judging it from like the dialogue. Same thing with his salutatorian speech where I'm kind of like, yeah, this, I don't love this dialogue. But like you said, it does drive the plot forward. And he's like, we're moving on to high school next year, which means only one thing. We're getting old. Everybody <laughs> kind of like chuckles and kind of like, okay, whatever. It's stupid. But um, I have a special disdain for any script or novel that has a character that is very idealistic for 95% of it, except for like five pages where it's convenient that they're not that way. To me, that's that's mischaracterization, and it's it's just like lack of consistency. Well, and- to, to play devil's advocate for with you on this, I think that it's done in the right part of the script. Like we're nearing the end of the movie. So like we've got this guy, hopeless romantic, very idealistic. And that stuff is challenged as he starts to realize like Jessica's never going to love him and his parents are probably never going to get back together. And he's a kid. And so I don't love the way that it's done, but I think that, you know, you don't want your characters to be totally static. You want to give them some degree of uh, depth and, and kind of like a concession for, for, I guess, the statement you're trying to make with this character. And I do think that, like, it's done in the right way in terms of, like, Robbie's been this way the entire film, but he's kind of reached his limit. And at this point, he's, like, ready to give up on love. I think that's valid for most character archetypes, but not the ideologue. And I... So we're, we'll probably just have to agree to disagree on that. But I think the the... The, the vessel that he represents in the in the script for the other characters, especially Cal, for him to, like, suddenly just, like, for, again, for five minutes of screen time to be like, I don't believe it anymore, and then to believe in it again right afterwards. Right. Kind of it's just, wrapped like, up okay. very quick. They, they should have maybe used somebody sure. else. So Cal does the thing that I hate, again, which is the at the, at the big event, somebody stands up and is like, stop. <laughs> Please Stop. And he gets up there and gives his own speech, which how weird would this be, dude, in a in a eighth grade graduation ceremony for a parent to get up and be like, shut up, and then just like walk up to the mic and start, start talking, talking about their divorce. Like, get off yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that'd be hella weird. So weird. But anyways, he gives a speech about love and that he loves Emily and uh, he'll never give up on her. And, and then Robbie reaffirms that he loves Jessica. So uh, everybody's kind of back to how they really kind of the status quo of like, act two where you know they're not with these women but they reaffirm that they're gonna not stop trying as we wrap up the film um cal approves of jacob and hannah i guess because he realizes in his own heart like in his own situation that like hey you know i'm i might not be perfect for emily you might not be perfect for hannah but uh i can't stop you for trying and all that stuff Um, they're at the graduation jacob and and hannah are at at robbie's graduation too so he sees him when he's walking away and i love that bit of how Steve Carell kind of, not even begrudgingly, like he's come around and he gives him his approval. Jacob is very weary, but he leans in and actually gives him like the handshake. And then immediately afterwards, Steve Carell just slaps him once. Because that's, that's what yeah. Jacob was doing. They go on their shopping spree. He keeps slapping Steve Carell in the face. And then Steve Carell does it again, like hits him again. And Hannah just goes, oh, this is going to be fun. And then the last scene we have to wrap up, the last love story is uh, Jessica and Robbie. So it shows them chatting after the ceremony jessica's obviously flattered by you know not necessarily robbie but but his but his showcase of his love and he gave so he gives robbie um the envelope containing nudes of herself to get him through high school which again is kind of weird it's even weirder that she was carrying that around yeah. that she had that on stack to be like hey here's some nudes in an envelope like 
Was she planning on giving that up to somebody else at some point? It's not quite clear. It's very weird. So it's just weird. Then she she kisses him on the cheek, and Cal and Emily are kind of just like laughing and talking, and it's clear that they're in a better space, but it's not clear at all that they're going to get back together, which I think is a good touch. Like, their status quo has not changed. Like, kind of like how, you know, it it creates kind of a real picture of divorce in a way where you can't just win people back. Like, sometimes they might need their space. Like, it's not... They, they maybe they'll be apart for a little longer maybe they'll never get back together um they're kind of just finding this new footing uh if you will i think the first time i saw this movie in like 2011 i didn't love the way that they ended it because i i kind of wanted more closure but having rewatched it a couple times i think the ending is done really strong it's very similar to the pod we did on hell hell or high water where it just kind of like leaves the door cracked open for you to interpret yeah. how this might end however you want And I think it's done, especially in a cool way, with like them, Emily and Cal are finally looking at each other and laughing, and they've still got a little bit of that sparkle in their eye. And the the very last shot of the movie is their son, Robbie, staring at them, and he's kind of optimistic about it, too. So it's like, you know, you could believe that, like, hey, logistically, this probably ain't going to work out, but you don't know that. It's done on a really, really good note. It leaves you, it leaves a little bit for interpretation, however however you want to do that. I agree with you. I think that if they had if they had made it very clear that every party is going to be together, especially Emily and Cal, I think that would have completely upended the entire point of the movie. I've talked about that with other movies in the past where you have a really strong film that says something really powerful, but then you just, at the last second, the screenwriter gets like a little bit, they fall a little bit too in love with the characters and they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to give them the perfect happy ending at the last second. And it would have been very easy to do that, to be like at the end, like Emily and Cal kiss, right? Yep. And the movie would have been basically the same film, but I think that the ending would have completely, again, ruined the theme of what this is about, about the com- the complexities of real love and real relationships. Um, so I, I I love the fact that they did not put them back together, If you if you look at it that way. I also, I understand how the last few shots showing it from Robbie's perspective is supposed to highlight the optimism um, because it's their son who's believed they're going to get back together for most of the film, except for the last, again, the last five minutes, which again, is, I, I think kind of highlights again, the weird choice of that. The other thing that I thought was weird is there's three shots in the last minute of the film that just show Robbie for like 10 seconds straight, his face just staring at this, staring right at the camera. It's very weird. It's like, it's the only part of this entire film where, where the directing really took me off. And I was like, why do they keep doing that? It even ends with Robbie just, he was like, yeah, last shot is is Robbie just with a shit eating grin, looking at his divorced parents. (laughs) It's just so weird. It's a weird shot. Like I I understand if, if they want to show that in passing as one of the last shots, it would make sense, but they just keep showing Robbie just like with his weird beady eyes staring right at you. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Yeah, They may have overdone it, but I do think like overall, it's a great last shot to have. Cause you know, Emily and Cal of all the love stories that are going on here, that's where we begin the movie. That is kind of the, the strongest love story. They've been married for 20 some odd years. And so for them to, you know, have kind of that rekindling, you don't know where it'll go, but they look over and they see Robbie, you know, looking at them smiling and you know things however they end up like things are going to be all right i I, yeah i think it's a i think it's a solid ending absolutely yeah it ends on the right tone and i think that where they left emily and cal is good but i think if you if if the ending is defined by like the last 10 minutes of the movie i think that it's the it's the weakest part of the screenplay 
it just gets weird and, and at, for, for the things I've pointed out, part of it is because it gets kind of campy with the dialogue. Like once you realize that, oh, the the climactic scene is going to be this graduation speech. At, that's kind of when I was like, oh, are we really going to do? This? Yeah, and I do agree with that. That seems like kind of it, a trope, like, oh. you know? Yeah, um, it's the it's the most tropey part of the movie and a movie that I think, did, for the most part, does a good job of when they do tropey stuff. It's to it's, a, you know, I, I use the term again to to subvert expectations with, as I pointed out earlier, the scene where Hannah walks into the bar soaking wet and kisses Jacob. But then it turns out they don't actually have sex like that. That whole. Stuff yeah, it's like the movie um, does a really good job of subverting expectations for an hour and 40 minutes. And then the last 10 minutes of the movie is like very gimmicky which again if they had put emily and cal together and like had them have a climactic kiss i would be like okay this movie has really jumped sharp like it was it was great and then now they just totally abandoned their principles at the last second so i'm really glad i give them bonus points for having the restraint and and not going forward with that because i think that could have been that could have been rough yeah okay it's time for some bad reviews or some low star reviews i guess i should say and they're pretty bad reviews too um jacob says one star this movie is terrible it starts off okay ish and then gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse as it goes on okay um yeah you're you're one to take writing (laughs) advice from it encourages 13 year old boys harassing and embarrassing 17 year olds that they are quote unquote in love with okay i don't know that it encourages that it actually pretty poignantly shows that he's being weird as hell that's not right. this is something that that pisses me off about how Twitter receives movies and novels and things like that is there if anything is shown they're like oh it encourages this yeah oh it glorifies this people are like oh euphoria glorifies you know drug use like dude have you watched it have you seen how every character that does drugs has a horrible life like and there's a direct correlation between their life being shitty and taking drugs but anyways um it blames the husband in a situation where the wife cheated. Again, I I think they make a pretty clear point to make it not about that. It encourages people to go after people who've expressly told them they don't want to be in a relationship. Gosh. Um, okay. That's more harassment. That's I, okay. That's that's a bold statement. Um, overall, this plot is terrible and makes no sense. On a good note, the acting is fine. Dev says, worst movie. I don't know how this got 7.1 on IMDb. It's not funny at all. Actually, the one funny bit was Marisa Tomei. Great actress. Wonder why Hollywood dumped her. (laughs) Cough, cough, Weinstein, cough. (laughs) (laughs) What? Dude, no, Marisa Tomei's in a ton of movies. Yeah, he posted this a year ago, which is between her two Spider-Man releases. So I don't know what what he means by her getting dumped. She's only been in like two of the most highly grossing films of the last five years. Anyways... Kevin Bacon was good, though he had nothing to do. That's about it. I still can't <laughs> believe people reviews. Did they watch a film of the same name? Susan says, Undeniably the worst movie I've absolutely ever seen. No redeeming qualities. Incredibly disappointing in this all-star cast, especially Steve Carell. That's all one so- sentence. Something tells me that Susan um, is A, not a writer, and B, is probably experienced divorce herself. I feel like this movie would be hella depressing <laughs> if you were coming off a rebound. Because um, like I said, one of the good reviews I wrote said, this movie understands love because it understands pain. I think it does a really good job of that. But people are just writing this movie left and right for like the nuances of not liking how the characters you know, approach each other or how their character arcs are done is, is beyond me. It's called Crazy Stupid Love for a reason. 
Nina says the film portrays women as brainless pieces of meat, which dude, if that is your takeaway, you are oh my god. Really? Yeah, okay. like so, Hannah's one break- of the smartest, like maybe the smartest character in the whole movie. You know, and at first Ryan Gosling can't even compete with her intellectually when he tries to hit on her at the bar. She sees past his whole facade, like when when they go. Yeah, to it's not up, like they have sex. Just like, she's like, "This is absurd. yeah." They don't even show them. Yeah. Like it's not. It's it, the whole their whole relationship is this is more than physical. Like I'm actually falling for this really smart, intriguing girl. Uh, so yeah, even Jessica, even hell, Jessica, man. like she clearly has a mind of her own. She like rejects Robbie and all this stuff, and then yeah, I, I that is an insane takeaway. I mean, the only person in this movie who kind of acts brainless is Marisa Tomei's character, which is kind of. She's a side character, so whatever. Um, Zachary says porn is better, which... Okay, dude. Okay. <laughs> I bet Robbie would agree. Milkshakes are better, okay? Like, it's like the, the kid from the news network who's like, I like turtles. Can we... I don't know what site you're on, but can we read more reviews from that guy? I have a feeling if that's the review he left for Crazy Stupid Love, he just wrote porn is better. I would really love to see what his other reviews are. God... Uh, I can't click on it. There's no profiles. Oh, man. This one's really long. I don't know if I want to get into it. Um, this guy gave two stars, and he had two pages worth of a review. I'm going to I'm gonna move on. This guy's... Okay, Mark is trying to compare it to Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Why? Uh, oh, okay. I can already tell that guy's such a douchebag. People who love that... that That is a really good movie. Uh, maybe we should review it, but that's also one of those movies that like people hang their hat on to try to be like... I'm smart. I've seen movies you haven't seen. I oh god. He says Stanley Kubrick could not could not resurrect Crazy Stupid Love, which is like, yeah. Would you really? Would you want Stanley Kubrick to direct this? No, film? dude. Like, <laughs> oh, get out of here. <laughs> um, uh, unrealistic and bad messages about human romantic relationships. That's a crazy take to say that it's unrealistic and bad. Like I don't know. That's okay. I don't know what you want. Uh, I bet if it was the most campy, corny love story, they would be like, this movie rocks. But uh, I like Steve Carell, but he basically plays Michael Scott in every movie. Dog, how is Cal anything like Michael Scott at all? They're nothing alike in this film. They've got, they've got, they've both got some awkwardness. Uh, I I mean, I still obviously think that's a hot take, but uh, I, I can see some similarities. You know, even that scene we were talking about earlier where he's sitting at the bar doing his the kind of Michael Scott thing where I'm a cuckold. He's like very flatly. (laughs) That line delivery is like Michael Scott, but Michael Scott is this unapologetic, unwavering optimist who has maybe three scenes in the entire show where he's truly sad. Whereas Cal is sad, basically the entire film. And is like, they're both pathetic people, but they're completely different personalities. Um, so that's a good point. Anyways, uh, Alyssa said, this is the most hetero thing I've ever seen in my life. The entire movie seems straight. Not bad, laughable at some parts, but we get it. You like the opposite sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, she she rated it two out of five because there wasn't any like homosexual relationships. Is what Maybe I'm she gathering. needs out of the three. There's only three. She wants there to be a sequel that's just like crazy gay love. Odd. What a weird thing to take brownie points off. Here's Robert Eppard's opinion, which I think is is done well. Crazy Stupid Love is is a sweet romantic comedy about good-hearted people. Imagine that. No snark, no raunch. It has a lot of cynicism, but it's employed only to be corrected, which is kind of my take when I read all the bad reviews is like, if you think that it's about being creepy to people you like and stuff, you're you're totally missing the point because they're they're doing it in a way to highlight how 
weird those people are being not to just talk about it for talking about it right and how good good people can do bad things and experience pain i mean we even talk like when we're talking about david linhagen's character it's like yeah dude this guy obviously did something that's not cool off screen but like by all accounts you see him and he seems like a a pretty good dude everyone in here kind of like roger ebert's saying is is a good-hearted person which makes it a lot more real in my mind the dynamics that they have with the different uh, love stories um, and how some of them work out, some of them don't. But at the end of the day, everyone's like, they're they're putting their best foot forward. The last thing that I'll say about the Eper review is I'm kind of skimming it as he talks, he goes back to how, you know, this movie has like formulaic parts and it has campy parts, but ultimately it does a good job of using the formula as a backboard to, really expand upon and make colorful characters, which I think is, is very true. Um, it's got cool nuanced characters. I love how they wove them together and it's, it's a solid film. What would you, what would you rate it overall as a film? I'm going to give it 6.9 as a romantic comedy. I'm going to give it a 7.5 because I think that it does a good job of challenging like the conventional tropes for the most part, aside from the graduation scene and subverting expectations. And it's a very, very human story. A lot about it feels very real. Um, so I think it's a way better than average romantic comedy. You know, it's something different. Yeah. Uh, and the acting's great too. Like, script aside, it's stellar cast, great acting, and it's funny. So, yeah, I'm going to say 7.5 out of 10. How do you feel about it? I would, I would write it a little bit higher. I think as a film, it's like a solid, middle of the road, solid film that you should see if you haven't. I almost put it like a 7.5 for a, for a movie. It's not a movie that I think, if, if, if you were like, man, Crazy Stupid Love is one of my favorite comedies, I'd be like, that's weird. But it, it is a movie that if you haven't seen it, almost anybody, I'd be like, oh, you should, you should watch it. It's good. And I would, I would want them to go into it not knowing anything about it. Because I think one of the joys of this, of this script is how the characters interact, how they evolve, like how Ryan Gosling's ch- character completely changes throughout the film. The scene where you learn that Hannah is their kid and that whole fight scene is is one of the it's one of the most fun plot twists yep. that I've seen in a modern film, to be honest. It just it's it's so well set up and it's when that when that's happening in real time, the first time you see this film, it's incredibly fun. Um I think as a as a quote unquote rom com, I think it lives about the eight. I, I do like that it it doesn't stay that formulaic except for a few parts here and there. I think the acting is good um yeah it, it doesn't have any like real weaknesses it's funny but it's not over the top it's got some interesting thoughts on on love and marriage and things that i think are realistic uh different people can watch this in different parts of their life and gain something from it that maybe somebody else doesn't it's not it's not a straight down the middle like you've got mail right there's there's different angles that you can approach this screenplay from which i think makes it makes it a fun watch and it made it a fun rewatch. Now I've seen it. I've now seen it three times and it kind of feels like a movie that I probably don't ever have to see again, weirdly enough. Cause it's weird. It feels weird for me to rate this like a 7.5 to eight, but then be like, I don't know that I need to see it again. I feel like I've, I feel like I've gained everything from it. Cause it's not like, it's not crazy laugh out loud, funny or anything of that nature. Right. Well, um, it's almost like, I do think the first like hour is a, is a little, it's a good laugh riot. Uh, it's not slapstick. It's not over the top. Like, stepbrothers where you're rolling in your chair but it is really really funny and in some ways to me you can get kind of divide it into two parts where like the first hour to hour and a half is like really really fun and you're laughing and then the last like 30 to 45 minutes of this is a lot more poignant and 
is just kind of drilling down the the themes of the movie. Yeah, it does kind yeah, of stop being funny near the that's end. Fair. You know what I mean? Agreed. Which is something that's pretty common in a lot of romantic comedies is you start to, uh, or really any comedy, as, as you need to like start, the characters need to learn. You know, there's scenes in like Wedding Crashers that are not funny, that they're getting to the point. So I, it's it's understandable in some ways. But anyways, it's fun, man. What, uh, what other romantic comedy should we do next? I mean, this is kind of the first... This is the first romantic comedy we've done, I believe, on this podcast. Dude, I'll tell you, I would have to kind of sit and think about that. I would, oh, I'll t- okay, so I'll tell you this. When I, as I was pulling this up, because um, it was on Netflix until yesterday, I also saw that Netflix had Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is hilarious. That's and that's good. another one that is, that's, that's funny. It's different. It's not your typical romantic comedy. It also has, you know, it's about a breakup, largely. And, and another one that came to mind that I kind of want to get you to watch. Have you ever seen The Apartment with Jack Lemon? I have it's yeah yeah I have black and that. white movie from a lot. This a is long a movie ago. that I would kind of like them to get to redo. Just to give anyone who hadn't seen it a general idea of the plot is Jack Lemmon's character works at God. I don't even know if it's like an advertising firm or a law firm or something, but he has this apartment that the firm pays for. The apartment is being used part time by the other men that work there for like their extramarital affairs. So it just yeah. it, I don't know. It's unique. This movie came out in like the. 60s i guess you're coming off the cocktail era and maybe you know men obviously behave much different this is more like your your madman type era but uh i think one it's original two it'd be really fun to review on this podcast uh, i think it won academy awards it's generally considered like a really really good romantic comedy and it's kind of one that like i would love to see them revamp it's racy yeah even though it's racy yeah. and like it's very misogynistic i think you could totally rewrite that movie for the modern era you could use that as a platform to address misogyny if you wanted to in in, in the sure. right way. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think those would be good rom-coms if we ever wanted to delve into the apartment or forgetting Sarah Marshall. As always, this is Novel Discourse. We greatly appreciate you guys listening. If you like what you heard, like and subscribe and give us a rating. But most importantly, tell your friends because we want to get the word out. This is Novel Discourse. I'm Sam. I'm Webb. We'll see you next time. Peace. Adios. Adios.